Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. A policeman's lot is not a happy one, as the song has it in the Pirates of Penzance. The trouble is... People keep on stealing from each other, shooting each other, and even defrauding each other, and then something really bad happens. We're thinking about policing in our communities this week, the challenges it poses, and the ways forward. We're not immune at Naked Reflections to all that clever CSI stuff from the TV show of the same name. So for our science angle, we thought we'd look at the less glamorous British version of forensics, Here's James French of UCL describing some basic forensic principles in the Naked Scientist show, Can Science Prove Who Done It? The answer to that question, by the way, is not always. So when it came to sampling, imagine I was a suspect and I've been apprehended. I might be sampled for gunshot residues. And, and the, the, the way of doing this is, is really quite simple. We just use a, a little sticky self-adhesive tab that's attached to a stub. Um, and these are sealed in a sealed tube that ensures uh, that there can be no contamination from the environment. And the process is, is simply that with gloved hands, we would look to, to dab on the back of the hands, particularly focusing on the sort of webbing between the thumb and, and index finger um, to ensure that any residues were collected. Also in, in the sort of cracks between, between fingers and knuckles as well to ensure that we were collecting the maximum amount of material. Um, and that would kind of be quite standard procedure um, after a firearm is discharged. But forensics are never cut and dried. Imagine our suspect goes on to shake hands with someone. You then have what is known as secondary transfer, which is a big problem. With me to discuss policing and the community are Ian Blair, Lord Blair of Broughton, who was Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police from 2005 to 2008. Ian is a trustee of the Wolf Institute and a crossbench peer. Being Commissioner of the Met was memorably described as being the most difficult job in public life. Being a trustee of the Wolf Institute has its own challenges, but hopefully it's a bit less stressful. Joining him is Miriam Shovel, 
a PhD student at the Institute of Criminology here at the University of Cambridge. Miriam's research is focusing on police policy in response to domestic violence. Ian, was forensics something you thought a lot about during your career? I would say, Ed, not really, till 2005. I suppose somewhere in the 1990s, the long understood forensics around fingerprinting was overtaken by DNA. And in 2005, uh, when I was first a commissioner, there was a terrible murder down in Croydon of a woman called Sally Ann Bowman, a teenager whose death was the nightmare that should never happen to any parent. They looked out of their window early in the morning and found their daughter dead and raped on their driveway. There was absolutely no clue whatsoever who had murdered her. Uh, and in the end, the detectives started to issue what I would describe as a sort of council of despair in a murder investigation. That they're going to try and take blood samples uh, off everybody within five miles. The chances of that bringing up anything is, is negligible. And then two men got into a fight. It's somewhere like Gatwick Airport. And they were both arrested, and they both agreed they didn't want to do anything about it. But by that time, they had had their DNA sampled by a mouth swab. Seven hours later, the murderer was revealed uh, and arrested. And the magic of DNA, I think, is one of the most astounding changes in, in policing that has ever happened. Amazing. As you say, fantastically difficult topic. And yours, Miriam, your research in looking at domestic abuse is also an inherently difficult area to police, isn't it? Well, one of the many things that's really difficult for the police about domestic abuse is that this is abuse that is happening between people who have an already existing relationship. So the kind of general framing of a crime as having a clear-cut victim and a clear-cut perpetrator can be a lot more difficult to unpick because there isn't just a one-off incident that kind of happens, you know, at, I don't know, 11pm on a Saturday night and that's it. And you can look at the cameras for that particular incident in the public place that it happened with a domestic abuse incident. It's not really an incident. It's one incident in an ongoing relationship, an ongoing pattern of behaviour. There's probably no cameras because it's probably in a private situation. And as we've seen, really, although the police have made a lot of improvements over the last few decades, there's still a lot of work to be done, particularly around that understanding of an ongoing relationship, an ongoing series of multiple incidents and how to deal with that within the criminal justice framework, really. And what advice would you be offering the police in terms of handling those, it's not, as I was about to use the word incident, and it's not, as you say, an incident, an ongoing collection of incidents uh, in the domestic uh, sphere? Well, that's a huge question. <laughs> I think one thing that's really important and that I've seen 
done well and done less well when I have shadowed frontline police officers is that first interaction at the scene can be really, really important for setting the tone about whether the victim in that particular circumstance wants to engage with the police. And we see that actually the majority of cases that don't get far through the criminal justice system fail either because of a lack of evidence or because the victim stops supporting the investigation. And the reasons that victims stop vary. And sometimes it's because they don't want a criminal justice outcome. Sometimes it's because they are very scared of the person and, you know, they're being coerced still. And so they don't feel like they will be made safe by police. And because these incidents are messy and because they often do involve people who have prior contact with the criminal justice system, you know, it might be a victim who has prior contact in a different context as a suspect, there's often low trust between the police and the individuals involved. And so I think it's really a lot about building officer empathy and understanding and not just approaching it as like a quick, we can sort this out, this is a one incident thing and then we'll move on. I think, Miriam, I'm sure that's a very good summary, but I I think the problem with domestic abuse, uh, and I've had long years of trying to understand this, is that the emergency call is to stop this bit happening. What then happens is that as long as the man is, and usually it is a man, but not always, uh, is taken away, the victim's interest in pursuing a criminal justice solution to this is very limited. And I think officers have a, a problem with protecting the victim while also trying, if, if they are going through a criminal justice process, to try and stop the victim from being pressured to withdraw because the family wants them to withdraw. And quite often there's the financial pressures, there's the rehousing and all the rest of it. And I do think this is a, an extraordinarily difficult crime to investigate, unfortunately, until it becomes extraordinarily serious. And this issue that it's a victim... I'll just keep saying him because that is the logic, the usual thing. Him out of the house, that's the solution she wants. And a criminal justice arrangement is not the best way of dealing with it, particularly a a criminal justice system that requires the victim to give evidence in, in a public court. What I am pleased with is the latest domestic abuse bill, which has began to understand some other issues in domestic violence other than, as it were, physical and sexual assault, which is coercive behaviour. And in that case, whether it's financial or otherwise, I think victims are much more likely to support a criminal process because actually they've had enough of this. They want their lives back. I've been around this for sort of 45 years. There is no good solution. And so much good work is done to be more empathetic. And then just at the end, the victim says, well, I'm not going to do anything. 
Well, I think also what that suggests is the need for multi-agency working and for recognizing the limits of what the police and actually what the criminal justice system can do and recognizing the place for other services to support victims as well. Because the thing is, it's interesting even, you know, when you talk about seriousness, right, and and you say it's like the most serious crimes that come to the attention of the police, that is true on the basis of the police's understanding of seriousness, which is often correlated to like, you know, physical violence goes up the seriousness scale. But obviously, it depends how you measure harm, and it depends who that harm is against and how it affects people. And I guess what I meant about the empathy was also about police officers being better trained and helped to recognise when they can signpost to other services who might be able to have that more long-standing relationship and, and like, you know, do the work to help something on a longer scale, whereas often a frontline response officer, they've got so many other crimes also on their plate. And let's not forget that domestic abuse, it's not actually a crime legally. It's just a flag that gets applied to basically any crime if it falls within the definition of the domestic relationship as it's laid out. So it's also really difficult for police officers often because unless they're trained really clearly on the power dynamics with those relationships, they can end up just labelling bicycle theft or something as domestic abuse because the two people involved were family members. So I think that understanding of those power dynamics and how that affects people's lives is is really, really important for frontline officers. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Ian Blair and Miriam Shovel, and we're talking about policing and the community. From time to time, there are reports of people confessing to crimes they've not committed, even in the course of an interview conducted according to all the correct protocols. It's a puzzling phenomenon. The psychologist Julia Shaw threw some light on the matter in the Naked Scientist show, Memories, Making Them and Faking Them. In my study, I set out to show whether we can get people to falsely confess to crimes that never happened and actually internalize that false confession. So to think that they actually committed this crime. So an assault, an assault with a weapon or a theft, all with police contact. So I didn't just want to do it for fun. I wanted to do it to show, look, this might actually be really easy to do in a relatively benign interview situation. If you've got someone on the stand and the evidence is poor and all you're relying on is their memory, you have to be careful. Ian, let's start with you. Do you have an example of this sort of false memory syndrome in your work? Um, Actually, Ed, uh, no. There are two things I want to say about this. The only time I ever come across false confessions is in clear cases of psychiatric disturbance. And the reason for that is that confessions are extremely rare in British criminal justice. Because, actually, what happens if somebody's arrested for a reasonably serious crime, they will be represented by uh, a lawyer who will say very simply to them, don't say anything. So modern, and I'll go back to 20 years, modern 
British policing is not really concerned with confessions. I've certainly had in my career one or two people who are clearly mentally ill confessing to cases that haven't happened, and that's a different thing. Um, but I think the other thing that needs to be seen is the significance now of police-worn body cameras, because I think what will happen soon is that arrangements will be made for the police to be able to show the footage from police-worn body cameras in the public, which they can't. So what happens is allegations are made of whatever and then published on social media and the police have the body camera material which will actually either prove or disprove that, but at the moment they're not allowed to put it into the public uh, domain and both the police federation and the Home Secretary spoke this week about saying we've got to change that. One of the issues in the last 20 years has been the relationship between the police and minority communities. And I know this is something that uh, is of interest to both of you. What is the responsibility? Let's start from the minority community perspective. Do you think um, to things like self-policing or or their relationship with the police? And is it any different from anyone else? The crucial issue here, it seems to me, is what's just now being described as uh, police legitimacy. How are the police legitimate? in the eyes of the public. And quite a lot of work has been done on this. Because we talked in my early youth, as it were, about policing by consent. But in a sense, consent is a a much less powerful word than legitimate. And I think consent was in a relatively monocultural world Whereas what we've got now is a country wonderfully diverse with different backgrounds. And it's how you understand how the police can be legitimate. Now, I have to go back a little bit of history here. There were terrible riots in Brixton in 1981. And that led to the police service trying to examine itself and developing what it described as colorblind policing. And then in 1993, there was the murder of Stephen Lawrence and the 1997 report. And the police began to understand that colorblind wasn't right. What had to be done was policing targeted at the experience and expectation of different communities. Uh, The most significant person involved in this work is Justice Tankabi, who is a uh, lecturer in law at Cambridge University. And he and his different colleagues have looked all over the world about what is, how do people define legitimacy? He's an expert in post-colonial policing. And um, that legitimacy, he and others define as only having two rules. The rules are fair and the rules are fairly enforced. I think it's interesting, it actually kind of links to what you were saying about body-worn cameras earlier, because I think there is this tension, and perhaps we'll come back to this um, later, with the police as needing to be a neutral body politically, but also wielding a lot of power, which if you come from a kind of feminist theoretical perspective, 
which I do, power is political. You, you don't need an official institution to talk about political power. All power is political. And I think sometimes the police forget how much power they have because perhaps on an individual level, you feel like a small cog in a big machine. And so you don't feel as an officer that you have much power and you're constantly trying to get results and it's hard to you know, convince um, juries or judges that you have enough evidence. And so body-worn cameras seem like a great solution. But if we think about um, minority communities, often they are over-policed. And so they are more likely to be being captured on body-worn video. And it's kind of also similar, actually, going back to DNA, when we talk about how long we should hold people's DNA. Well, if black and minority ethnic people in the UK are overrepresented in the criminal justice system, which they are, then their DNA is also overrepresented. And so I think all of this can really contribute to lack of trust in within minority communities against the police, because there's a sense in which they feel more targeted because police are more visible in their communities and because they get picked up for whatever reason, even if they haven't done something, their fingerprints on file, maybe their DNA's on file, maybe they've been captured on body-worn cameras. So I think like Justice's work is really, really important. And the key thing that's important about his work is the idea of procedural justice, of officers explaining to people, especially people in minority communities, why they are doing what they are doing, seeking the feedback of people from those communities, understanding the concerns of people from those communities. And as long as that dialogue can be built and maintained and not just done for show, you know, I'm not saying that it is, but it could be just paid lip service to, then that's where you will start to see an increase in trust, I think. I think one of the crucial points was what's the responsibility of minority communities to encourage their young people to join the police? Because we've slowly, steadily built up an increasing number of black officers, but I find it difficult that so few Asian and Jewish people join the police. And somehow they expect the police to have the sensitivity to be able to police them without saying they're going to take part in that process. Most of these communities now are a third generation, at least. So what is the responsibility of the community to become engaged with the police as opposed to the police's responsibility to make sure that they're doing their absolute best to be supportive and emotive? I mean, I would just suggest there, though, that representation is only part of reducing or hopefully eliminating discrimination. And I think it's a really good ideal to try and improve the diversity within police forces themselves, because obviously seeing people who look like you in roles, especially roles of power, is important both for creating aspiration in young people to follow those paths, but also that sense of safety of feeling like there are people like you looking out for you in those roles. But I think the 
we have to go further than just like putting it on people in those minority communities to like be the change. We also need to think about the ways in which institutions are still, you know, institutionally discriminatory, even if the individuals within them mainly aren't. And we also do need to think about the fact that there are increasingly proactive policing activities, you know, trying to stop crime before it occurs. And things like stop and search and also the use of, you know, algorithms to try and predict who's going to commit crime. They run real risks of discriminating before a crime has been committed on the basis of past data where minority individuals are overrepresented. So I think that representation is part of it, but it, it's not the whole solution. I didn't wasn't suggesting it was the whole solution. I'm, to be fair, Miriam, I've spent about 30 years of my life trying to make trying to make the police more diverse. So uh, I'm not saying that, but I do I do think as the years roll on, there is actually a responsibility to say, well, where are the police officers from those communities? Because otherwise we're constantly asking police service to be more diverse, but not necessarily getting the recruits who will even begin the process. Let's move to a different topic, which is the challenge of the politicisation of the police. Um, Jack Straw accused Margaret Thatcher of politicising the police during the miners' strike back in the 80s. But I wonder whether the police have always been a political pawn. Much of this conversation has been about aspects of this politicisation. But Ian, when you were head of the Met, that must have been a challenge managing the politics of your bosses, as it were? I think I can say a yes to that. But I think the only time in my service that I thought the police were being politicised was during the miners' strike in the 1980s. I think the police service got too close to uh, Margaret Thatcher's government in that period. I was very lucky because I was a detective at the time. I wasn't involved in any of that sort of stuff. But, I mean, I had enough trouble with what, what happened over having to interview Tony Blair during the cash for honours crisis. And I think the fact the police service could interview a sitting prime minister, if we compare that with a number of countries that bar that possibility. So France, that could not happen. We've seen what's happening in Israel with Netanyahu. I mean, I think the police service did reasonably well with some very significant crises around heavyweight politics in my time. I don't think the police service is politicised, although a couple of things have happened. We used to have crime correspondents. They've gone. They're now home affairs correspondents, and they treat the police as if they're part of Whitehall, which the police are not. And the concept of police independence of command is enormously important, which is what has always worried me about the introduction of police and crime commissioners, whom I actually believe to be a solution in search of the problem. I don't know what the problem was that's led to that solution. There we have it. I declare this interview closed. Thanks to my guests, Ian Blair and Miriam Shovel. And thanks to you two for listening. Without you, it would all be a bit pointless. Please make yourselves known to us, to use police parlance. 
You can find us at the Wolf Institute, send us an email or on Facebook, a Facebook message or on Twitter. Check out our back catalogue of discussions from addiction to zoonosis. You can also find Naked Reflections at nakedscientist.com slash reflections or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.